Executive branch class right now. She took, she took one pen from me last semester. So. So she called you dad over the rose. She doesn't call me. She hardly talks in class. She like hides out. She just doesn't make eye contact. Yeah. Well, do, you, do you call her on the first day of class? I, I did. Yeah, I did. Okay. Yeah. That would make sense. Just to get it out of the way. You she should have just called roll. Yeah. <laughs> so we got it out of the way. All right. Who would like to say the prayer? Who was who was the who did it last time? Do we remember? I think I did it last time. Okay. Yeah, do you want to popcorn it? Yeah. Who? My dear Grace Heavenly Father, we are so very thankful for this opportunity that we have to be here at BYUI and to be here in this class. Father, we ask you to please bless that as we go throughout our discussion, the discussion will be full and that we will be able to learn as much as we can. Father, we, we love you and we thank you, Father, for this. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Thank you. So anyways, I think I'll, I think she deserves an ice maker. My kids are so spoiled this time. She needs to make a gift instead. Although I will, yeah, seriously. Although I will say, Christmas this year was not as good as last year. Last year was insane. Okay. <laughs> it was like, I was like, honey, we could all like. <laughs> I mean, she, my wife is so generous and kind. that, And we have a little money. So she likes to just do it up. I'm like, okay, let's just, let's just take it down a notch. <laughs> I dated a guy who like, was pretty loaded. Yeah. Their Christmas world was extravagant. Yeah. And uh, I guess his family decided the little girl was too spoiled. So to cut back, they weren't doing Christmas gifts, but they're going to take her to a trip in Jamaica to do some work there. Oh, I'm sure yeah. she loved that. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing the need of the service. Your Christmas is the service trip. Don't feel bad for my kids. They were still spoiled. It just wasn't as bad as it just wasn't as bad as 2021. Or sorry, 2020 Christmas. I think I think I think you're right. It was a rough year. Maybe that had something to do with it. So I want to show you a couple things as we're getting started. You know, one thing, and I, you know, I looked. Um, oh, it's right here. I just looked this, I started looking up a few cities and I started with New York City. So I think one of the assumptions that people might have, and it's, it's a not, and not an incorrect assumption, is that because of the pandemic, cities are not growing. They're still growing, right? Certain cities. Um, so here's like New York City. If you go down. And I looked at the 2021, 2022. I think they have 2021 and they're still growing slowly. So, um, you know, London's growing. Um, I looked at some cities in Brazil, because that's a right mission in Brazil, as you guys know. Um, the city that I was in, Belo Horizonte, was 4 million in 1994 when I was there, and it's now 6 million. So it's growing quite a bit. So I think, you know, even during times of trouble, cities that are doing the right things, that are that are doing those attractive things that he talks about in the book that we're going to be reading more of, they're still going to bring people. People are going to want to go there for opportunities. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't some people that are looking out there saying, hey, I now work virtually and I can move anywhere I want. Some, yeah, some people are doing that too. So, but cities are still attracting. I think for, all, for, I think for the net gain, the cities, they still have that because, you know, for those that leave, there's more that come usually when it's a good, productive city. Do you like virtual, like, workplace is going to be kind of like, it's not going to go away anymore? Like, do you think people are just going to continually to stay online for... No, I think it's here to stay. Yeah. Yeah. I think a bigger challenge for cities, and, and he actually, I haven't read it yet, but Glazer wrote another book um, that came out like a year ago, kind of about the, called The Survival of Cities, about, you know, sort of what's going on with the pandemic and how do cities deal with that? You know, if, if, if people are still living in the city, but now they're not, now they're not necessarily working in the, all those offices, yeah. you know, that presents one challenge to cities is what do you do with that space? And, and uh, how does that change the dynamic of the city that way? But then I was gonna show you one other thing before we get going. There's my daughter again. She's awesome. Um, 
is it? Well, this just had like a bunch of cool. Oh, I looked at the updated numbers for urbanization. The book said the book is at in the book it was fifty percent, right? Now it's at about fifty-six percent. So so fifty-six point two percent live in cities. Biggest changes are happening in in uh, Latin America and the Caribbean right now. This is a fun chart. Then and now urban population worldwide. Look at North America. 83.6% of people in North America live in cities. That's crazy. There's one other. I think that's it. So I thought that was interesting. Where was that other stat? They said somewhere, was it by 2050? They think seven in, about seven in 10 people will live in cities. Okay. All right, well, let's get, before we get going in the book, and we've got, was, I, the intro was kind of just implied, right? Did you guys read the intro? I hope so. It's good. If you didn't go back and, we'll, we'll talk, I'm going to talk about it. So go back and read it. The, uh, before we get into the book, just to kind of, let's talk about the schedule and then anything about the papers real quick. Did the so so Friday you have a, a work day right? Okay, right now it, it's honing down this topic, researching, getting your sources, and working towards getting this prospectus done that's coming due right. And then uh, Monday we're back in the book. Is that right? I just had it off. I could have. Yeah. Monday we're back in the book. Sarah's teaching on Monday. Perspectives is on Wednesday. Perspectives is on Wednesday. Okay, yeah. So reading, you're only so as you noticed, there was a lot of reading today, but we haven't had any reading and we're not doing any more reading this week. So it's sort of this sort of the same thing. Once so once we get done with this, start reading for Monday. And then that will be your only reading next week. Okay? So there's chapter four and chapter five, and then it says we also started another book? Yes, so chapter one of the public space, public life okay. um, book. So we'll do those two, these two chapters, and then the ch that chapter and that book for Monday. And then on Wednesday, your perspective is due, and we're, we're just going to have a class section discussion about your paper, a little more in-depth, kind of like what we did before with the topics. Okay. But we'll spend a little more time. Um, I'm going to shred your papers. <laughs> it's terrible. Who did it's this? It's a terrible topic. Why did you do that? Smart city. Why is there mustard on here? Why is there mustard on your perspective? No, we'll be kind and all that good stuff. But yeah, it's just it's just to get you know. And if you guys have ideas as we're presenting the the perspective, just say, hey, look, have you thought of this? Or you know, that's helpful too. I think. So you actually want a hard copy? Yeah, bring a hard copy. You don't really get a grade for it, but yeah, bring a hard copy so I can look through it. And, all of that, so, and then I talked to you guys about how I sort of do the rough draft, right? Yeah. Okay, so any any questions about as you guys start working on this paper? The key is use your time wisely. Don't wait. Set aside time every day to do to work on your paper, or every other day, or whatever you're going to do it. Otherwise, this thing's going to kick your trash because <laughs> it's long, right? So I've been finding quite a little bit about smart cities with hospitals and like different types of things like blockchain or even like developing urban um, cities around hospitals. Uh -huh. How much room do I have to kind of explore all these different topics? Like, or should I really kind of try to hone in on one because I'm like really kind of wanting to explore like maybe five different areas within smart cities about hospitals? Well. Good question. I think I think there's a real temptation to want to talk about everything because when I you always when you and whenever and I have the same temptation when I write stuff. Yeah. So I think the way to think about it is if it doesn't serve the the purpose of the kind of the narrative that I'm telling in my paper along with the along with the thesis. Yeah. Uh, then I probably should not include it. 
Because but if it fits in, yeah, and you're and that's it goes towards your kind of how you're measuring it, then that could be appropriate. Because I feel like I kind of got like what you said, where you're like, there's not going to be enough room to be able to tell your story anymore. Yeah. At this point, with like limiting pages. Yeah. Because I want to focus in mostly on like the population and being able to adapt to the growing population within like being able to keep up with hospitals. And so I'm like, well, I could talk about this, I could talk about this. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to have room to be able to talk about this all in like one section. And so I was just curious how much room you have to really kind of dive into multiple areas. You don't have that much room. <laughs> so don't get carried away. Like I said, if it, if it doesn't fit into kind of the, the thesis and the topic, and it's sort of out there, you're, you feel like you're on a tangent, okay. then don't include it, okay. right? If anything, your lit review might be a place where you include a little more stuff. Okay. Um, and then you kind of, by the end of that, you're sort of saying, well, this is where I fit, and this is without saying I. This is where this paper's going, but uh, don't get carried away because there's a tendency. I, I have that problem too, and just in life in general. Because yeah. I just I just too interested in too many things. There's actually I mean it, I just kind of believe there was so much research done on it. Like it was super easy to be able to just like pull up Google Scholar and like connect the papers and then find like tons of stuff yeah. in smart cities and then like. So focus it, narrow it down. Is it, that's what you always want to narrow it down. Focus it as much as you can, and, and then and then go that way, but. And then with your time, you know, one thing, you know, it's helpful to set, actually see if you'll set aside, and I'm not, I try to do a little more scheduling in my life. I found it's very helpful. Set yourself an alarm, set aside time. Hey, this is my writing time. I don't do anything else during this time. And I put my phone away. And, because one of the things with writing, and, and you guys know this because you've written, is, and this, I think this goes for all writers, it's almost like it's almost like playing a sport. You gotta you gotta sort of warm up, right? And so, it, and and that's the other thing. If you're if you're only setting aside like thirty minutes, doesn't really do it, or even an hour. So I would recommend like, you know, setting aside a couple hours or three hours, and then by the by the time you get, you know, done with that kind of first hour, even if you're sort of struggling, you'll it'll start to to come. And then the other thing that I found really helpful is even if you have on the other end, if you have a time limit, if you feel like you're in a flow and you, and you don't have to go do something else, keep writing. Does that make sense? You know what I'm talking about? Does anybody get the writing high? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the writing high is awesome. <laughs> I love the writing high when it's, just coming, when it's just coming to you naturally and you're having all these great thoughts and all. That's the inspiration coming and you should just, just keep it going. Wish I had it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wish I had a board. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> start with the the writer side <laughs> right off the bat. Well, like, if you if you listen to writers talk, you know whether they're fiction or nonfiction writers, you know that they'll tell you the same thing. You know, set aside. I'm a big John Grisham fan, and I read all. He's written like 37 books. I've read almost all of them, and that he has this process that every day he he does the same thing every day, and he does it at the same exact time and. And you know, so you set aside these times for, for you to focus on, on the writing. I think that's really good advice. Um, and then yeah, again, if you get inspired, even if it's not the designated time, you have a thought, write it down. Go 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 write something up real quick or whatever. But okay, any other any other thoughts? Gosh, are we all already twenty minutes in? Man, I'm long winded. Okay, let's talk about this. I will leave you some time. Tucker's like, just keep going. He's excited to roll. What do we got? We got 40 minutes. What if I take another, can I do this in 10? What if I take another 10 or 15 minutes and then you can take the rest? Okay. All right. So I I'm going to talk, let's talk about, well, I'm not going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. So intro and then chapter one. First off, what, did you, what do you guys think of the book so far? I like that he talks about his stories a little bit. Like, he uses a lot of examples, but then Logan doesn't like that. He wants more statistics. We thought that would be I wish that he had more statistics to better come to his stories rather than just a lot of answers. Yeah, he has some statistics, but it's definitely, he's definitely, oh, this is like what I call a crossover book, which is he's, he's as academic as they come. Uh, you guys that took political science, 3.30 from me. Remember the day when we, we talked about cities in there and I had you watch, I wa you watched his TED talk. Oh. 
get the little, there were like three TED Talks that day. The one, one of them was his, his TED Talk, and he was, I think he was talking about this book yeah, in that TED Talk. first in like a lot of the topics, and just... Yeah, so sometimes, I think sometimes, you know, he wasn't going, he wasn't trying to write the super academic, he's, he's trying to like the broad appeal, um, New York Times bestseller book. Right, so that's why that's why that that approach is in this. Um, I think so. Yeah, well, I'll show you a clip of him maybe a little bit later on. But um, other thoughts, just on in general. You thought you thought a Harvard economist. He's going to be super liberal, but he has kind of an interesting take on. On, I'm not sure. I'm not actually sure what he is, but his, his approach to the economics of cities is definitely not liberal, right? Especially the environmental part, perhaps. But okay. Um, so I showed you guys some stats on cities. Cities are cities are continuing to grow. What do you think the future of cities is going to be? And what does Glazer kind of put forth is. As the, the, I think a lot of people, and especially in the last year, would say something's changing and cities are cities are dead and cities are going away. Do you think that's true? No. Probably not. Why? I think, I think there's always going to be a need for cities because, like they say, it, people flocked opportunity, and as we continually grow and become educated, it talks a lot about that. It says that you know most people in cities are becoming more and more educated. And education is becoming more of the mainstream thing to be able to go and do. And so as you do that, people are going to want to flock to cities to be able to utilize the degrees that they're using. And you only get that within these big firms that cities bring and offer. Okay. Other thoughts? I think along with that, um, I liked how in the beginning kind of used the examples that people, like smart people need to meet up with smart people. And so like living in cities enables you not only to use your degree, but to meet up with other people, to create companies and create different yeah, but can I? But so what? What's so special about like that face to face? Can I do that on Zoom or do a Skype? Well, he talks about that guy that has the open work floor, right? And so he says that when he has the open work floor, that he's talking to people, they are able to work in free competition with one another. Yeah. And when you have that, you can see how everyone else is doing, and then you continually try to do better. They say when you're working by yourself, you're not going to be doing as well. When you don't see how you're comparing yourself to other people. Yeah. There's, there's something, I mean, I think the technology will continue to advance as you guys, you know, we'll see going forward with, you know, the metaverse or whatever, if we have these little avatars that look like us that we're interacting with people. And, and, and maybe, you know, it'll look like meetings, maybe the meetings will look like Star Wars, like they meet in Star Wars. But it, that, even, even then, you don't get the same thing that you have in the true face-to-face. -face. There's an energy that happens when you meet face to face, right? And then that kind of, uh, the spontaneous, some of the spontaneous, you can get some spontaneous stuff on, on like a Zoom or something like that, but it just seems, it's more kind of seems programmed. So there's something natural. Classes, when you look at classes, you know, a lot of students probably do a lot better in person because they're talking to people and they're like learning, they're educating through each other, but like on Zoom, like I've told people before, I don't know any of these people before, like fall semester because I was always on Zoom with them, but you like learn and you grow with people. Yeah, and that's where the and, that, and the cities have the talent. Yeah. Right, because they went there because of the things that attracted them to the to the city, and then, so if you want to be around the talent, that's where you go. So when I was I was a pretty good basketball player, but I grew up in Eastern Idaho and I was still really good, but I could only I could only be so good on my own doing my own practice and playing with the people in Idaho. So my dad's really funny. He, when I was 12, he, he he was dead serious. He came and he's like, I have to have, we need to have a conversation. I was like, okay, dad. He's like, he's like, I just feel like you're not, you're not being challenged like athletically here in Eastern Idaho. I'm like, okay. He's like, if you want to move to Boise, this was like the big idea. Go to Boise. There's more companies. We'll move to Boise right now. Um, so I thought that was really, I mean, that's pretty cool that he was willing to do that for me. Um, but even better, not Boise, you know, for basketball, you know, go to New York City or go to LA. Um, so whether it's basketball or, or tech or music or, or business ideas or whatever, 
the best people and the best ideas are all happening in cities. And I think that's what that's what um, Glazer's saying. And I noticed it real quick because I went to college and then all of a sudden, you know, I got kind of as good as I could get in high school playing with Idaho kids. And then I traveled a little bit, so I got some exposure to other players. But then I get to CSI and it's 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 really good athletes from all over the country. And then I, in about two months, I just really, really improved because I was around the people that could kind of challenge. That's what cities do, right? So I think there's that healthy competition that's going on um, all the time. And you see, and you see examples and you take, you kind of take stuff from people and, and ideas and, and all that. Right. The physical, what the first chapter is all about is how they were able to develop so much faster because people from all over the world were coming together to be able to learn. And that's what shot Japan 30 years into the future with medicine is because of their ability to take from other people like what they were learning and growing and developing. Yeah, I like, I like the Japan example. It's like, let's really take cool. this good stuff and let's, let's, uh, and, and cities do it now. I mean, I think, I think a lot of the, what we, what we call the developing world basically said, look, this is the model of how you modernize and kind of take, you look at China or, or South America or wherever, and it's like, that's this surgery, is how. That surgery story would be cool. Unfortunately, they took some of the bad, <laughs> <laughs> the, the push, like, like the, the push to the car in China is not a great idea, right? Because um, you, I mean, yeah, you don't want all that sprawl and you don't want all that pollution and it's so many drivers that, don't follow the American model of the freeway system all over the entire, that, that's not so right to bet. Um, okay, so what, um, talks a little bit about New York, a couple examples in that first chapter, introduces you to Jane Jacobs. Um, she's famous because she wrote, she's a report, uh, kind of a, well she was kind of a lifestyle reporter and, and, and uh, published some articles and wrote some books about New York City and growth in New York City and and uh, she's famous for for stopping a, a, a couple of well one thing she did was she stopped a they were gonna run a basically the freeway right through right through where NYU is right now that um, in like Greenwich Village area of New York and and she sort of led the protest to stop that um, but she wrote a really famous book um, that that's how she became really well known. But um, she was a little more into historical preservation than maybe Glazer um, is. What is it about too much, what did Glazer say about too much historical preservation? Cities aren't innovative and they can't like develop okay. technologically. Okay, and, then, and, and so Glazer is all about building up, right, and, and so you know, you can't do that if we've got old buildings and height restrictions. Mm -hmm. So, so, so he's arguing for more of like the New York City. You know, the Brazilian cities are up, right? Um, we had a guy in here from. He's in, living in Tokyo right now. Up, right? Paris. Re height restrictions, sprawl, little sprawl, right? Um, so, what is it that? What does he like about building up? more dense what's good about what's good about being dense spreading COVID. <laughs> spreading COVID quicker it's more it's more environmentally friendly because your footprints less right and then you're even more on top of each other more around each other and that's good for businesses it's good for all these ideas that are flowing and and all that stuff so so uh he talks about how he you know we we sort of get it wrong we got it wrong for years on environmentalism because we thought, you know, the cities were the worst, but if you look at the footprint of an individual living in a city, it's less than someone like me. I'm, I'm a polluter, right? I live in a big house and I commute and I do all this stuff, and so I'm, I'm a, I'm a net loss, whereas a New Yorker is is hardly doing anything because they don't they don't use a lot of them don't use gas and they use the subway and and all that stuff. So. Um, other thoughts before I turn this over to we, in maybe chapter one really quick. Um, what'd you get out of, he, he talks about Bangalore and then talks about Athens, Baghdad, and Nagasaki. You mentioned Nagasaki a little bit. 
what did you guys kind of pull out of chapter one that you liked? He references guns, germs, and steel, the theory of that a little bit, and like their ability to, and like why are they able to um, develop so fast, and I, I thought that was pretty cool. Okay. I was, I was just writing down, I wrote down a bunch of things that, that, they, that he mentioned, like uh, cross-cultural connections, um, conduit for ideas that we've talked about, face-to-face -face interaction of cities, young people, urban education, globalization. And then in, when he does Athens, Baghdad, and Nagasaki, he gives some specific examples. For Athens, he talks about sort of the Western philosophy and the Athenian philosophers and them kind of competing and being around each other and, and that flow of ideas. Uh, Baghdad set up this, this house of worship, where, or house of, sorry, um, wisdom, where they brought in books and ideas and, and all that. And then uh, Nagasaki, you know, they basically did it with, with trading and the Dutch East India Company and taking ideas and incorporating um, those ideas. So, Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley. What, what's, so, what's so great about Silicon Valley? They got all the like, technology innovation. They got Stanford. Yeah, so Stanford. He talks about the story of Stanford and like how a lot of people um, have started businesses from, you know, you have Yahoo and Google. Both Stanford grads started those. The, he gave the talk about the story of the industrial park, and the industrial park was this place where it was supposed to be an innovative place where people could come and live and work and, and come up with ideas and, and all of that, right? Um, okay, what, one, uh, what about challenges? What kind of challenges does, do cities face, or cities that might, and we're gonna go into this in the next chapter too, but. Um, what is there a difference between cities that succeed and those that fail? And Detroit's going to be our example, so we don't just a general answer right now, maybe. Yeah. Well, that's sorry, this isn't answering your question, but I'm confused. You said he talked about building up, which yes, is yes, but he also talked about how like a lot of the mistakes cities made were just like building skyscrapers everywhere instead of like. Yeah. Well, I think he would say, look, we're, we don't just build for no reason. We build with a purpose. And, uh, you know, China's famous for this. They, well, have, you guys seen the, have you guys seen the abandoned, like, mall city thing they have in China? Yeah. Where it's crazy, right? Like, they just built all this stuff, and then there were no people there. So if you, the people have to be there. There has to be the demand, and then you build, Right. So I think that's how he would act. Don't just build for no reason. You build because of demand. If people need, if people need workplaces, then you build or, or housing or whatever. And when you do that building, it should be, uh, for the most part, more dense, in his opinion. I think that's, I think that's how he would answer it. But um, Brigham, who's, who's taken the, hi Brigham, the person who's taken the class remotely, he had a, a quick question, maybe just for the group. He said, if ideas are the foundation of a thriving city, does this mean that cities can thrive anywhere new and fresh ideas are cultivated? Is that what Glazer's saying? Is it just ideas? Or is that a byproduct of the city? Yeah. It's a byproduct, right? Um, I mean, you guys, have studied, you guys have studied enough in different fields and in history and, gosh, I took an anthropology class and anthropology is great. You know, Ideas, ideas is not the, not the reason that cities start. Cities start because of, of, uh, of people and safety and uh, access to resources. And then, and then those, those other factors. And then once the city's going, then that really, those kinds of things will pull more people, right? Don't you think? Right? I mean, like think about some of, think of our, a lot of our great cities are port cities. Right. There's a reason that they're because they were they were put there because geographically they could they could have ships and they could trade and and all that. So there has to be a reason for the city to start. Then the people then the people will come. Then then you get all the ideas and and it grows and grows and grows. Right. I don't know. Is anybody into that game civilization? Is that, <laughs> is that what happens? Was it your class there where you're talking about like spiky cities? Like, where, like, will globalization, right, they grow up, rather than, like, the spread of globalization, but... No, it wasn't my class. It might have been... Oh, 
Was it one of Was it Adams's? Yeah, so it um like talking about the globalization it's not like spreading and like more cities are like developing necessarily but it's that big cities are growing yeah mega cities yeah and they're growing up yeah yeah that's um isn't that that's thomas friedman right yeah um so when he actually the guy who came and lectured today talked about um talked about him because he his lecture was on globalization so these mega cities that grow up um you know, Glazer would say we're better off not touching the city or su- touching the countryside and letting it stay green and beautiful, and right. Um, so environmentally, um, I'm going to try not to think about the wolves right now. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> I knew it wasn't going to be good. We got to do our. We're doing the simu- the wolf politics simulation again at 3:30, and all the wolves in Idaho are getting hammered. Okay, so that's it. You take over, chapter two. So, I mean, I hate to be that guy, but I'm going to be that guy. I want to start right off at the front, like right at the beginning of chapter two, because I think it's awesome that he describes kind of what Detroit looks like. Now, I've been to to quite a few cities, but my favorite, well, really my two favorite, have to be like D.C. Hmm? and Detroit. Detroit. Oh, really? Yeah, Detroit is hilarious. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because it would be like... Uh, the only thing that I can think to compare it to would be like if Dubai were to just fail in, in just a couple of decades and just kind of fall apart. And it's really fun to drive through Detroit because it's like a ghost town. It's really scary. I like it. Um, but anyways, in, in terms of, of how that city stands, though, what I mean, obviously, you know, Glazer kind of lays it out for us. But what primarily killed that city? government trying to resolve a lot of the, the issues that arose from an industrial society, and I think it just kept falling flat on its face. Um, particularly, and something that I wanted to look at, was uh, riots, specifically. Uh, also, just because we've had all the protests over the last couple of years. Um, so, really, it starts on page, I think it's 52, um, but I'm on page 53. Uh, because I wanted to discuss, he compared New York's um, kind of murder rate when it jumped on um, page 53. And I kind of wanted to discuss good ways that you believe you can prevent riots or protesting of any sort. Um, but before we do that, I want to discuss something kind of cool. Actually, no, I don't think we have time. So how do you prevent riots? I think it was interesting because the book talks a lot about um, the police brutality and like the racial discrimination and how you know fifty percent of the population was black, but ninety three percent of the police force was white, and like the tension that causes by having you know this imbalance basically. And so I think that was interesting that it talked about how riots were caused mostly through the anger and the oppression of you know small acts that were caused by big problems. Solving even like racial disparity and tensions to go a long way and being able to reduce riots, I think. The, the problem, though, and the thing that is addressed in the book is in New York, what they found was that when they were trying to address kind of the, the racial disparity between the police and the, um, and the actual citizens of the city, the more that they pushed to, to kind of heal that, the less results they saw. And the only time they actually saw results was when Giuliani increased the, the policing that was going on. So in terms of, of addressing that, the thing that I thought was fascinating is just how much trying to um, fulfill certain political expectations, I guess, kind of failed. So 
I, I don't think that that means that you're wrong by any means. In fact, I think it's really important to kind of solve that racial disparity, but I don't think that it's a good idea to do it at the expense of like a police force and its, its ability to actually function. Yeah. No, absolutely, I think there's, you know, there's multiple ways to solve any problem, and I think that, you know, especially as we talk about cities that create new ideas to be able to solve problems and think something like that. Um, it's only going to get fixed by people coming together to figure that out because the way we're doing it right now, obviously, for the past 100, 150 years, has definitely not worked. So I like that. Sure. Yeah. Um, beyond beyond just like working on the racial disparity, though, um, another big issue, especially in Detroit, because it was an industrial city, was the fact that um, a lot of workers' unions rose up, and that also caused a lot of riots. And it kind of discusses that a little bit, but not as much as I would have liked it to. Um, but what do you think is a good way to prevent workers' unions, but then also prevent the like the fall of all the industry that happened in Detroit after um, everything was just kind of allowed? Sorry, I'm really kind of building on and kind of stepping away from the book. Well, he, no, he talks about unions. I think, I think Glazer's not saying we don't need unions, but over union, I mean, if, 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 the, if the protections go too far, and, and he's saying this, when, this is a theme of the book, I think in general, that's why I really like this book is, you know, and I'm a, I'm a pro-government guy. Um, I teach public administration. I believe in government. I believe government can solve problems, but Government shouldn't do everything, right? And sometimes it does too much. Um, but but the private sector shouldn't do everything either. And sometimes it does too much. So there has to be like a happy medium. So whether it be policies that the city implements, they should be smart things that everybody agrees on or most people agree on that are going to work. Um, if it's unions, you know, there should be a healthy relationship between having unions and 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 workers' rights and and also some freedom for businesses but uh, so this, he, I think that's sort of ha what he's how he's navigating this whole thing well if I were to elect you and I'm talking to all of you individually if that makes sense but if I were to elect you as the mayor of Detroit what would you do to bring Detroit back to life Oh, good question. I don't want to be the mayor of Detroit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Detroit's still not growing, by the way. I looked, I looked that one up. So I would resign. It had a little bit of a rebound in it. That's a good question. I like how the mayor, uh, I can't remember what city was it. It talked about it in one of these chapters where he basically tore down like any building that wasn't in use anymore. And he says, it's not about building up my population anymore. It's about making the population comfortable where they're at right now. And I think that's a good way to go about revitalizing the city. It's tearing down and making it safer. Because he says that he was tearing down, you know, like, what was it? it was like, this is Detroit. Yeah, it was in yeah, Detroit. Yeah, this is Detroit right now. Yeah. Okay. yeah, so that's probably, I probably would try to go about the same way that he was already doing it. Because he really looked at it from the standpoint of, I need to make sure that the citizens are already happy here. The more people aren't going to come here, or even want to repopulate here if they're miserable and they're not feeling like it's safe to even go outside anymore. So he eliminated that fear by tearing down the places that people could hide in the shadows and basically create crime. Yeah, this is a great question because this the, the book really in the, in subsequent chapters answers more of this question you just asked. It's a, it's a, it's a great question. Yeah, not to answer, like this isn't an answer, but I just thought it was interesting. I don't know if any of you guys have seen these recently, but I've seen commercials advertising to come and live in the city. Yeah. Like, have you guys seen yes. any of those where it's like, come live in this beautiful city? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just so interesting that they're trying so hard to attract people to the city that they have these commercials where they show, like, the beautiful areas in the city. And, of course, you never see the slums or hear about the murder rates or yeah. anything. But that's, like, one of the ways they're really trying to get their city to have a higher population and have... And we have a worker home. shortage right now, so... Mm -hmm. Um, for a lot of different reasons, but you got to get those workers. Any other ideas? What would you do? What What is it about a city? What What's attractive about a city? 
I would like ask if you could like both of them. I think like the image of the city is just so important, even if like it's not ideal and it's not where you want it to be. I think projecting that though on people and the outside is what really makes a change. Because if people start to believe it, then they become to act like it is that big, beautiful city. Like for example, I love to spend my summers in Chicago. Yeah. Anytime I talk to anyone about Chicago, they're like, "Oh, crime. Ooh, that's a terrible place to go." Whereas, like, I've never, I've never had a bad experience in Chicago. Like, it's always like people are so friendly to me, and it's always welcoming and bright, and there's music, and I would always, you know, kind of advise people like, "Oh yeah, like you should go. You should try it out. You should go visit." I think it's the same thing with like Detroit where you need to start making that change and that image of the city so that people believe it. Because if you tell them it's trash and they believe it's trash, then they're not gonna wanna make an effort to make a change. They're not gonna care if you're going to make a change because it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, what, I, what I think is interesting, because um, he does draw from New York a lot throughout um, this chapter just as kind of a comparison. Um, in terms of what Giuliani did, because Detroit is a, a relatively crime-ridden city, do you think that increasing the police population would be a good thing a, as mayor, or do you think that it would continue to, to fail? I think broken windows theory. Yeah, I think it depends on how it's done, right? A big thing that happened in, they talk about New York, was that like, police force was 97% white in a town that was 50% black. So more often than not, racial, or racial segregation, discrimination was happening on the police force, especially in the vice, the vice unit they talked about. So I think if you integrated it more, you know, in a town that's 50% black, you can't have 97% white people, just kind of made it more kind of equaled, equalized, and yeah, more police force would be made. So nobody wants crime, and especially in certain areas, right, of the city. I mean, if crime, it just sounds bad, but like, if crime ha happens over there, <laughs> right. That's not good for the people that live over there, but for the tourists and everybody else, um, you know, that Chicago's that way, right? Um, there's, there's crime happening everywhere, but a lot of it happens in certain neighborhoods, right? What I, what I think is interesting is a lot of cities are now implementing where, like, you have to actually live within the, in the precinct that you actually work for as an officer. And uh, I think that that would be a good way to kind of increase the amount of, um, not diversity, but just kind of mirror the diversity of the police force with the city a little bit. Um, so I think that would be a, a good first step, really, to creating a police force that fits the area. But beyond that, I also think that there's uh, a, a lot in terms of actually getting people to want to be a part of that police force. It is difficult to tell people you should go out and spend the money and learn how to become a police officer if it's just not very lucrative once you're done. But um, beyond that, what would you do um, to alleviate kind of the stress on the cities after riots? Because something that was discussed was how awful, um, I can't remember where it was, but there was just this park that was just kind of left dilapidated is the word that he used after this uh, riot that happened decades ago. And it still looks the same way. But if the money's not there and the economy's not there, what would you do to create an economy that could actually repair the city? Because even after you've tear torn down you know, all, all, the, all the buildings and you've created a strong police force, how are you going to get that economy somewhere that that city can actually grow? I don't think any of us have the answer. Yeah. <laughs> if we did, if we did Detroit wouldn't be in the situation that it's in. But it is something fun to think about. And I think Detroit knows the answer, but they, it's still hard to execute. I mean, you've got to get jobs, right? So, so whatever industries that you're trying to attract, you've got to get them to come there, and maybe you're offering incentives or whatever to try to do that. That still doesn't mean you can pull it off, right? Because people want to, people come to cities because of a few reasons: work, right, the jobs that there are there, and then you have the the play stuff, right, all the fun stuff to do, and the food and all that good stuff, and then education as well. So those are kind of the three, three of the pillars of cities. If you don't have all that stuff going for you, you're not going to be a thriving 
city. If, you know, that's why I love New York so much, is because it has everything. You know. So. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't want to waste too much more time on chapter two. But we have to talk about favelas, so. Yeah, yeah, so I want to move on to um, kind of the slums and how they were and everything that way. So in, in terms of, well, what I wanted to do is I wanted to see if we could do a debate and just kind of split the room. Um, but basically, I wanted to debate whether or not like government um, intervention is actually helpful in terms of, of the slums. And the, yeah, and... and I think it is to an extent, and it isn't to an extent, which is why I wanted to debate it, so you have to take a side. So, um, I think these two tables would be good to be pro-government, right? And then so this is specifically around, like, <laughs> active government in the slums? Okay. Yeah, versus these three tables, so this and, and you guys are, like, libertarian, you hate government. You want no government in the slums. Yeah. So Wait, which one am I? I'm really confused. So you're am no, I a libertarian? No, 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 no. I'm a libertarian. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Okay, so um, we have like 10 minutes. Well, the Brazilians had this debate, and the government won. But you know what the government did before the Olympics, right, in Brazil? Huh? You know what the government Probably did in, in the favelas? They went through all the favelas. Oh, they pulled people out of their with, houses. With, yeah, it, to try to get as much of the drug. They didn't obviously couldn't get all of it, but they tried to try to really clamp down on the drug trade inside of the favelas in all those big slums throughout the country. They showed us videos in of the it. in the two years prior to the Olympics. So they showed us videos of it, and then like I, I talked to a guy who was actually on the bot force in Rio, and he said they would pull up to a house that was a known drug house. And they wouldn't even knock. They would just no, yeah. light up the house yeah. with their guns. And then you know, they would look inside and they would know no matter who they were, nobody inside that house was innocent. Is what, they, is what he told me. Okay. So that's how they did that. Okay. It was not a good Oh, yeah. It's extreme. Yeah, they, they would just kill everybody in the house. All right. Oh, my gosh. It was not a good Let you guys prepare for your big debate here. I'm glad you're programming. <laughs> uh, anyways, um, so you've got... You've got like eight minutes, seven minutes left. So if you want to just take like three minutes as a group to prepare your argument, no, okay. yeah. and I'll do the last five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're in libertarians. I'm pretty sure that we like are like sort of capitalists. Yeah. Like, we're we're going I don't think they should have just lit up the house, but that's what the guy who I talked to who was on. So it's called Bob, right? Like a swap course in Brazil. And that's what they would do. They would pull up with their trucks. They had like the big machine on the yeah, they have, well, basically, it's, it's kind of, yeah, the best example is it's like SWAT, but it's like, these are specialized forces. Yeah, it's almost like, it's like police, quasi-military, kind of in between. But it was, he was telling me, he was like, you know, you just, you live in the house and you just left, you didn't have
Yeah, in the in the was it the Detroit chapter where he talked about um, Boston and New York? Yeah, in Detroit or in the Detroit the the that's chapter two, right? He talked about how like we had all those restrictive housing laws. That would be an ex kind of an example of government overreach. I think it's actually a good argument for you guys is that when those started to get loosened up, that actually helped integrate the cities. And so it's back to what I said earlier. You don't want to you don't want too much on either end, but too much government or too little government. You want a nice, happy, happy medium, right? So, this is, sorry, that's a political science answer. <laughs> well, you know, to, to that end, though, um, Glazier does point out that you know, while uh, uh, like cities in in um, in Brazil, like the favela, are the way that they are, we weren't that far off in in cities like New York and Boston years ago. 
and through through the assistance of, of well, for one, the economy just getting better, but also the fact that the government did a lot in terms of working to help clean that up. Yeah, it really did resolve a, a lot of the problems that were not very far off from the favela, at least as Glazer described it. So, to that yeah, if you look at like right post uh, depression, right eras. Um, shanty towns in the U.S. Yeah. So I, I think that there is just, it's really important to balance that, like, we need government, but we don't need a lot of government. And I'm sorry to make you all take extremes that I know none of you really agree with, but it's fun. I could find some people in 110 that have agree with some extremes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. So that's kind of how that goes. Um, good job. Thanks, Tucker. Um, well done. So, Sierra, you're the next on the hot seat. So, as you can see, he came with a lot of questions. He had that activity. Was you had another activity as well that we didn't do. So I think I think that's the way to do it. If you have enough questions, you don't have to even get to all of them. If you have some ideas on things you want to do, and then you can kind of just see how the time is. And but everybody. And he didn't get that much time because I was taking half of the reading. But um, if you plan on about 40, 45 minutes, and then I'll try to take up 15 minutes with a current event or something about the paper or or whatever. So. Hang man. So what were, what was did we answer your question about favelas? Um. What was the question? I th well, I guess it wasn't a question. It was more, I didn't think Glazier really focused. I think he had kind of an idealistic view on it. Right well, no, I think all, he was just saying, look. He's like, the government did this. They put the Institute of Health plan, got all this stuff done. But oh, you're saying he, you think he has a rosier picture of what a favela yeah, is than actually. I don't think he. He needs to go to a favela? Go, I think he needs to go to a favela. He needs to live in one. Because they did do that, but. When the government did put in their, you know, they had the subsidized health plan, they put it into the favelas. Right. It didn't really make a lot of difference. Yeah. Other than the fact the vaccination was Healthcare didn't really improve. Yeah. So the thing, and he said this, the thing the favela has going for it is because you're in proximity to the city, you're going to earn more than a rural poor person. Yeah. But other than that, but even then, the quality of life is not... Great. From what, I, from what I saw, the quality of life was still better to smaller in the, in the, in the houses that weren't in the middle of the You know what we need to know? This would be a good paper topic. What we need to know is, like, does that proximity, if you're poor in a big city, proximity to the ideas and the people, does that pull you out? Does it pull you up from being poor or not? Or is, or is there... I know a little bit of the answer to this, but is there a generational poverty and you just stay in the favela and your kids stay in the favela and their kid, you know what I'm saying? Or is there something about that proximity that you can get out or some people get out or whatever? Yeah, I was talking and I was like, well, every time, so I started in, yeah. And the quality of life was better in the smaller city yeah. than it was in the smaller Yeah, because you, I mean, at least, at least, uh, you know, because you're probably dealing with a city of uh, mostly middle class folks, right? In the smaller city. In the city. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Most people in the, in the other city were probably, there were some poor people, but it was mostly low to upper middle class. For Brazilian standards, in the smaller city. Yeah, it was all upper lower class to middle. Okay. Yeah. But you have like in Porto Alegre, you probably have like some rich people, some poor people, and then a mix of others, right? Because the mix was a lot smaller. Yeah. The income inequality gap is is much bigger. Yeah, that's my. Yeah, that's my experience. That's my experience in the because I served in a bunch of like fifty thousand, seventy five thousand, hundred thousand, and then and then four million size city. And so I feel like in the book he just kind of glossed over that. He could have spent. He could have definitely spent a little more time on that. Yeah, 
I was like, this is not what I experienced yeah, in my two years. Yeah. Because I spent, you know, all two years except for one transfer in Philadelphia. No, you don't. Yeah. Yeah, he sort of does. He, he is, I get what you're saying. He, I mean, I, I know why he's doing it, because he's just, he's just trying to make a proximity argument for the income. Yeah. And there's a lot of other things that... Maybe he, maybe he would talk about if he had time or something. I don't know, but the income necessarily didn't mean a better quality of life. Yes, no, I I agree. And the city's going to be more expensive. Yeah. So. You can build. And so that's what I just you can't build this by Yeah. Yeah, there's more opportunity, but they don't take that opportunity. They still, you know, the, the same problem we have for rural is. Yeah. Except for the one lady who made hairspray. He did do that example. So that so so he, he, so he yeah. I mean, it's the Jay Z argument, right? Jay Z grew up in poor in Brooklyn, right? Poor in Brooklyn, and then made it big. So you're you you're saying, look, if the city's really going to do do something for poor people, it needs to pull more people out of poverty. Yeah. That's when the city really has power. Exactly. No, there aren't many and there are you know, there's people like you know making necklaces. Yeah. Right. What I so meant, <laughs> what I meant was I went, I kind of went for relationship relationship. I, I didn't come out right. Because <laughs> uh, dating was painful. So I had all my girlfriends. So I was so bad he's left and right. You know, you need to give me more time. I'm going to get up all day. I've got to, I've got to. Almost 16 year old son, and then 17 year old, and my daughter's 19, so you can guess. Those are the terror years. Yeah, they, they like to make fun of me that they're number one. <laughs> Fun thing to do. My dad said that my, his and I relationship got so much better when I got out of my teens. He was like, when you turn like 20, 21, yeah. you got like something to get it's No, it's a fun age. How can your friend out? Yeah, my dad was like, you're the worst. <laughs> So it gets better. <laughs> they got they made they gave me a hard time because I, I don't know if I could tell you guys this, but the other day I said, Does that make sense? Oh, like, yeah. if I do that in class. Yeah. And I'm like, I didn't mean it like that. He's like, that's so demeaning. <laughs> like we're stupid or something. <laughs> like, no, I didn't mean it like that. That's good. Okay. They're funny. Alright, thanks guys. Are you going to religion now? Yep, I'm gonna chill with Taylor for two hours. Fred? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. How do you know them? Um. So I met Camille my first semester here at BYU and her first semester too. Oh, okay. And we've been like hanging out ever since. Then. Yeah. And then she was like, "Oh, you taking one of his classes?" Like, oh, okay. He was around here. Yeah. So he's our state president. Okay. Yeah. And I, I literally live about half a mile if that from him. My Dang. brother, my brother okay. lives. My brother's his neighbor, like two houses down. Oh, cool. I had dinner with them this Sunday. So oh, cool. Yeah, I like Camille. Yeah. Camille's great. Their whole family's great. I love them. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you.